take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Okay, first off, Doctor, let me just start by... <laughs> Your podcast is amazing. Oh, my God. <laughs> I would blush if I could, but I can't. But you're one to speak. First of all, that intro music is straight up gangster. You like that? Oh, man. You saw me. I was, I was just jiving to that beat right there. And uh, no, that's gangster. You, you have a fantastic show, and it is truly a privilege to be Thank on. Thank you very yeah. much. So, Quadro, Caraman Tang. Yes. Nailed it. Uh, doctor of palliative and critical care. Wow. Yes. Did my research, did my homework. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's amazing. As I was saying just off mic, uh, I was on my run before the show, and, and I was taking a listen to your latest episode with uh, Andre Picard. Mm. And uh, I, I honestly, and this is not to, like, boost your ego, which I'm sure it's going to do anyway, but, like, it's one of those podcasts where it's kind of like everyone should listen because it's going to resonate somehow. And it's, like, important oh. shit to know. You know what I mean? Oh, thank you so, very like, much. That's why I just want like an ovation for uh, to start. That, that really, it mean, <laughs> honestly, especially from a fellow podcaster, it means a lot because that that has always been the goal that your grandma could listen to the show and take something out of it. So yeah, that really that means a lot, Ryan. So yeah, thank you very. You're much. very welcome. Uh, so, the, speaking of the podcast, it's solving healthcare. Um, I guess your aim is you're trying to in your own way, find out ways to solve and make healthcare better. Absolutely. Can you that up? Yeah, you know, it, and it came from, um, like, so we, our research group, we were doing a lot of projects and, and successful at pr- producing these publications. And three years, in, three years into it, we hadn't really created any change whatsoever. Mm. And... And so the whole research was looking at ways to to make healthcare more sustainable and reduce spending and and um, yeah I, I just I remember sitting down and be like what what has changed guys despite us doing these projects and so I've always been a podcast enthusiast and I, I said to myself like why don't we just try this you know it was mm-hmm. committee year this was probably supposed to be a, a 2021 plan but I, I kind of got impatient, just started going. And um, yeah, and I thought maybe this is a great way of increasing awareness where some of our common uh, healthcare problems are, are, are displayed and ideally, you know, come up with a solution, start up the dialogue yeah. and also like scale up some of the awesome initiatives people are doing. Cause I got to tell you, I'm in healthcare and I'm, I'm learning about some of the most Beautiful initiatives, like um, one of the shows we did was with um, Jeff Turnbull, who works in inner city health, and he sees vulnerable patient populations, and they see so much volume that mm. they say they they estimate that they see about three thousand four hundred uh, emerge equivalent visits a year. So that's three thousand four hundred patients that are not going into emerged, you know, increasing wait times and so forth, but they're handling right there at their clinic with great care in an environment that works well with them. Mm-hmm. And this is something that p- 
people could do throughout the country. You know, like it's not a a very Ottawa unique um, scenario. So like these are kind of examples of mm-hmm. initiatives that people are doing that you know people might not be knowing about, and hopefully it inspires people to to act. Yeah, and make healthcare better. I, you know, that's one of the things you know I love about podcasts and. The thing, like the thing I've even found doing it, uh, and and you know doing the research on finding guests, and there there are a lot of people doing incredible things, and just because they're not getting notoriety from major media or newspapers, publication, uh, it doesn't make what they're doing any less. And you can tell they're it's great because they're doing it out of the, just the goodness of their heart or from a passion rather than like look how great i am yes you know what i mean genuine yeah yeah so like it's the things i loved listening to your podcast one like it was accessible so me i know a little bit but most of my knowledge is from house and uh grace (laughs) anatomy (laughs) (laughs) so can i just say too there's not as much nookie that happens yeah in the hospital, and if it does happen, I'm not aware of it. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, no. I remember. Yeah, my mom. My mom's a nurse, and my friend Casey, uh, who's been on the podcast before. Oh, I heard that. Episode. Yeah, yeah, and she's a nurse, and you know, it's always the question: is it, is it really like y'all just sleeping with each other all the time? <laughs> so that's that's it's good and sad to hear, I guess you could yeah. say. But you know, that to say, like, I don't know a lot, but maybe I know a little bit more than the average person per se. But I could follow along with your com- – you weren't using, like, these big lingo medical terms that I'm like, whoa, like, you know, couldn't follow along. It was inclusive. Mm-hmm. You know, you are talking about transgender health, uh, vulnerable populations, like you said, mm-hmm. indigenous. Uh, you know, you were talking about things, again, that you don't hear a lot of because, one, maybe they're not as sexy right. or it's not the coronavirus. So, right. you know, there's no mass panic, mm-hmm. you know. What kind of led you down that road as well to cover things that, you know, maybe you're not putting an episode out of all about the coronavirus. You're mm-hmm. just because that's a recent example as no, we, no, we talk it. here now. Yeah. Um, but you're you're talking about things that maybe some people neglect to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair, Ryan. It's just I think what drives that personally is, you know, a lot of us got into medicine to help and to help those that are in most need and those populations and are often the ones that are need the most help Mm -hmm. and it's it really like i gotta tell you there was a few months back i we treated uh, a lady who was iv drug user she was younger than i am a mother and she died from her complications of her iv drug use and you ask yourself if something happened earlier, you know, could could her, would she have to be here? Would would her would her ten year old daughter have to say goodbye? You know, mm-hmm. and and when you see things like that, you can't help to not want to bring awareness to these issues and and try to actually uh, right put you know put resources into trying to help uh, these patient groups and you know we it's just. This is what we're meant to do. You know, we're we're supposed to be helping those that are most in need, and and I could speak personally, like mm-hmm. from a guy that like we all could say we're busy. 
right? And I, I got three kids. Shout out to Teddy, Marlon, and Zeke. What's up? <laughs> um, and you spend a and and during medical training, you spend a lot of time being all about you, like trying to mm-hmm. get your, that knowledge base, trying to get that, uh, you know, uh, to try and be a good doctor. It takes a lot out of you, but at the same time, you are so self-absorbed. You there's no helping others. Like there is helping others in the day to day, but there's no, it's not outside of medicine. And I I think, um, you know. After you, you you get a few years out of your career, you, you could say to yourself, "What more can I be doing?" Mm. And uh, you know, I think this is part of that. And and a lot of colleagues that have now, I find that are further out of their career, like uh, further out of their training. Sorry, mm-hmm. you're seeing more of a, more starting some uh, re, uh, charitable organizations, mm. being involved more in 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 in, in the community and and. I think it, that's kind of part of it too. Um, I don't know how I got here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, um, it's important to help out. Yeah, there. absolutely. Um, so for context, a palliative doctor is what? Yes. For those that don't know. Okay, so palliative care is we basically see patients that are closer to the end stage of life, and we really look at issues around that so making sure that their symptoms are are controlled so whether that's pain whether that's anxiety whether that's you know um shortness of breath uh nausea all these things we we try and and really um contribute like help out to manage these symptoms Mm -hmm. we're also you know try and communicate expectations during end of life you know what to expect what the trajectory might be, but um, ultimately it's, uh, you know, helping managing uh, um, pain and symptoms during the dying process. So you're basically your whole job is to take care of, I would not, sorry, not say your whole job, but you're responsible for taking care of people who are dying. Yeah. That'd be the short version. Yeah. What kind of impact does that have on you? Because um, we had Michael Dixon on who, uh, he's a funeral director, among other things. But as a funeral director, you're around people in the saddest part of their lives. Uh, You're around death, Mm -hmm. right? You're watching people, you know, die. Mm -hmm. How does that impact you mentally? Physically, emotionally, you know, yeah, what? How does that's a good question, how do you handle right? that? Yeah, yeah, I get that question a lot. Yeah, they're like, "How can you do something that's so depressing?" And one thing that's absolutely clear to me is this is one of the most special times to be in people's lives and to be part of it. Often is a, a, a true privilege because you know I had no control of what's going on. If they got their stage four lung cancer, you know, they're dying regardless if I'm there or not. But to be part of making it less painful or making it as peaceful as possible, bringing closure to the family, I you honestly out of all the stuff I do, it it feel I feel like it's the the thing that has the most impact hmm. cuz taking some, taking some of that pain away is can have a lifelong impact for the kids involved or the spouse and 
So it really, I have a lot of um, satisfaction or uh, from my job from that sense. From, but there's always a couple cases a year where it's just too close to home. Right. Like a, a um, I won't I, just for confidentiality. Course, I gotta, I gotta kind of keep it uh, vague. But there was a young patient that had um, a, a very aggressive cancer, and um, one of the cancers that you you have no risk factors. It just came out of the blue, and he, his wife was pregnant, and the whole goal was to like just make it to see the birth of his daughter. Okay, and I gotta tell you, when the guy, he was extremely debilitated, I might get teary eyed by saying this story because it was, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. Um, what <laughs> wheeling him into that room and seeing his uh, daughter, who you know he, he couldn't hold and real, like he couldn't effectively hold, and knowing that he's got days or weeks to live and not going to be part of that wonderful child's life would just like it that stuff is hard yeah like as a oh guy that has you know relatively similar age a young family like you feel that and you know th- those cases luckily they're not as common as you know elderly people passing and um but those can be tough and what what we try to do is be there for each other like amongst our colleagues right. we'll, you know sit down and talk about why this is tough i'm a i'm a guy that as a plays a lot of likes to be physical for as an outlet so i do a lot of hockey i, I go to the gym i get those those are important parts of my uh mm-hmm. like uh what's the term like uh decompressing or what whatever the term might be and then laughter like i'm those that know me well know know I'm a bit of a jokester. Yeah. And uh, you know, having that release is an important part of life. Uh to be able to, you know, smile. And uh um those are the, the important those are the mostly the way I I cope, but mm-hmm. every all my colleagues will tell you like they you know they're, they're grateful for the work they do, but it's always a couple cases a year that it's just a little too close to home. Yeah. And, that's when you you hug your colleagues, you hug, you uh, call a friend, and yeah. I mean, I remember being, God, I was in high school, um, but a, a, a child who was very, very close to 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 me uh, died of cancer when he was young, and I remember going through the wake line, and they had an open casket, and when I saw the child, I I couldn't take it. So that was one of my very like first experiences as like a, a more of a I would say adult mind of of being close to death in a way. Mm-hmm. So like I I always you know and that's why I think people ask that like how can you go through those that that process almost day in and day out and mm-hmm. but I, I like the the answer that you know it's it's not really about you you're you're taking these people through this emotional but special time in their life yeah and 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 ryan sometimes you like there are times too where you know you're part of you you're really part of the healing like you're like 
one of my favorite moments in general when it comes to death and dying is you'll be, 50, you know, 10 people sitting in a room and, you know, dad's dying and, and on his, on his, uh, is on his deathbed. And we talk about some of the silly jokes he used to do and funny outfits he used to wear during Christmas parties. And there's laughter in the room. There's, there's, uh, there's sharing and it's beautiful. Mm. It really is. And, you know, my palliative care colleagues, especially the nurses, shout out to the TOH nurses, those <laughs> also in uh, Montfort Hospital, they help create that. They they really, they you know, you'll hear about, um, sometimes you'll see families that are not wanting to come or uh, don't want to yeah. be um, around one of the siblings or whatever. And, you know, I can think of a number of nurses that would they get on the phone and, and let them know, like, it's important for you to be here. You really don't want to... Um, you don't want to, for lack of a better word, screw this up for yourself and your family. It's time to, it's time to be present, you right. know, and just, and I can't count how many times families will say, thank you for just laying it out. Thank you for being honest with us and allowing this process, which is already super tough losing a loved mm -hmm. one to make it a little less or significantly less painful than mm -hmm. it has to be it's... is there something you've learned through this process of now being the doctor from before about death and dying is it more comfortable for you now do you have maybe more increased anxiety about it yeah. um for a little context the reason that i first started getting panic attacks when i when i was a kid uh, the introduction i guess to my anxiety and mental illness was thinking of my own mortality and that one day no matter what i have to die and that would st send me into a panic attack mm -hmm. now being close to it seeing people go through it are there things you've learned are there you know is it as maybe scary as we think is it is there you know you've talked to people who who know they're dying and mm -hmm. can have those conversations like are there, there things you picked up along this way about it yeah i like that question ryan the the things that I've picked up along the way is most people, there's a few things. One, people know when they're, when they're approaching the end. There's like this spooky phenomenon that, that happens where, you know, I will look at a patient of their vitals. I'll assess them like outside the realm of palliative yeah. care even, but I'll assess them and they'll look me in the eye and, and say like, I'm going to die tonight or I'm going to die soon. And you'll be like, L listen, Miss, Mrs. Nelson, your vitals are okay. Everything looks good or whatever. And the next day she will pass. It is weird. People have like a feeling, a premonition. I don't know what so it is. So there's no like scientific, you know, like chemicals in your brain being released yeah, or like, anything uh, like that? Maybe there is, but yeah. we're not, it's nothing that we're picking up on. Right. And I can promise you most docs... And nurses have experienced this at some point, and it's weird. I don't know. Uh, I don't know why that happens. Um, that's one thing uh, I've learned. In terms of myself, I was. Um, I, I would say I'm less fearful than I was mm. when I first started. I think when you see someone pass, and you realize often how peaceful it could be, especially if you know, in in if we know it's happening and we are anticipating it's happening. 
you know, the, you know, a lot of people's fears come in in terms of the dying process. Like, am I going to suffer? And, you know, most of the time, I would say that doesn't happen, you know, especially when it's a planned death in terms of it's, we know what's happening. There's good palliative care involved. Um, that's another thing that I think has made me more comfortable with the, the dying process. Um, there's so many things. There's, there's these, uh, other uh, unique phenomenon where um, say there's a say grandma's dying and she has a daughter that's coming in from Australia and it looks like she could die any minute whatever they some patients they're not even conscious they'll hang on hang on till that daughter from Australia makes it and then minutes or hours later they pass or there'll be the opposite scenario where um, there's 40 people in the room, always, and mom's never alone. The second everyone goes out to get a coffee, then she passes. Like, there's these kind of, like, unique circumstances around the dying process that it's almost like they're speaking to us despite being unconscious and they understand what's going on. Um, That's that's another kind of uh, unique thing I've, I've, I've picked up on. I think there's so many. Um, we got time. Yeah, um, <laughs> the rest of the podcast. Yeah, just... let me think. Um... But you know, it's while you're thinking, yeah. it's it's interesting that like you know you always get those lists on Facebook. You know, uh, ten lessons from people on their deathbed. Oh, yes, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I think those people re- really resonate with with a lot of people because mm-hmm. you're always. I mean, that's the end, and people are always like, okay, like I don't want to regret life, and mm-hmm. I don't want to like miss out on anything. I want to make sure that when I'm there, I follow all the rules that these people before me have told me about so that like I've lived my life with purpose. Yeah. And I mean that, I mean a lot of those, you know, Facebook lists, I got to tell you are true. Yeah. Like the, you're not going to regret work. You're not going to, excuse me, want to work more. There's no one on their deathbed that says like, I wish I would have gone to, I would have worked extra hours on X, Y, Z. I wish I wish I would have spent more time with family. Like those are common yeah. links. There's like um, closure with family. Like when you know, there's been um, what's the word when the relationship's been uh, difficult with a son or a daughter. Like they re- that eats at a lot of patients near the end of life. Like they really want to reconnect with right, their loved make ones. amends or and also the you know the, the the people that are being left behind. Like they also. That that's a part, um, a really important part of the grieving process. So um, these things you definitely do, mm-hmm. they, they definitely do come up. I can't think of all the things on the list, on a common list, but you know those are the, some of the theme, yeah. themes that come to mind when um, patients are passing for sure. Right. Um, it's interesting, eh? Like mm. to think of. But you, you know, Ryan, don't like I. The other thing that's kind of, um, you know, the adva- advantage of working in this uh, mm-hmm. field, or, or if, for lack of a better word, is you, you truly do realize how fragile life is. Like, you really do. Like, you know, Kobe Bryant died a couple of days ago. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. And his daughter. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. And the stuff that we see, like, like um, you know, in the palliative care or in my ICU job where – Someone is, like, uh, I'll think of uh, those that uh, 
my fellow civic crew, when we lost uh, one of our nurses and her husband got uh, got uh, into a fatal car accident in April 2018, and all of a sudden, you know, two kids are are now orphaned, and you know, healthy. It's 11 o'clock, uh, going out for for dinner or whatever, and then life is gone just like that. So like, a lot, you'll notice a lot of people in my field they don't oh they don't have that um that that expression oh i will you know travel when i'm retired i'll do all these things after i retire no man you gotta live now mm, like if you go if you go afford it and it's within your means there is there is uh like do it now and i can't count how many times and the nurses out here will will they're going to be nodding with their heads when I'm saying this, but the the medical professionals that uh, retire at you know they've been talking about retirement forever. They their 65th year. They now they retire and then six months later get diagnosed with breast cancer or some fatal illness. I can't count how many times that has happened. Oh my god, it's crazy. So I mean, not to be too mother paternalistic and stuff, but you, I mean, you do live now. Doctors are yellow, for sure, yeah, right? For real. <laughs> you only live once. Yeah. I mean, I would say not all doctors or medical professionals have that same mindset because, you know, they don't, a lot of my profession, my colleagues aren't seeing death and dying on the regular. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But um, those that do, like, I, I think that's an important part of their um, mindset. So... I, I'm just picking up on the thing. So I missed the part of the ICU. So you also work in a intensive, what is that? Intensive care unit. So, okay. Um, actually, your nurse friend, what, uh, she, she's at the Civic, but she, she works in, in vascular surgery, Vas I think. Oh, yeah. A2 or, yeah. 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 If, uh, yeah. What was her name again? Casey. Yeah. Shout out to Casey. Shout out to Casey. She's going to be listening What's to this. Up? <laughs> Come see us in the ICU. Um, the so my other job was my main job actually is oh, okay. in, yeah is in the intensive care unit so basically any patient that needs to be on life support of some sort uh comes to the intensive care unit so if you've had a, a crazy car accident leaving you brain uh like having a traumatic brain injury um where you need to be put on a, a ventilator that's us if you got a really bad pneumonia that needs to be where you need to be put on a ventilator that's us. Um, really bad bleed into your brain. That's us. Um, so basically anybody that needs support to manage their airway, breathing, or circulation comes into the intensive care unit. So the sickest of the sick, that's that's my gig. Right. So as we talk about the coronavirus, if that were to spread, yes, like they're, they potentially could be coming into oh, your yeah. unit. Like we, we are... That's already talking about, you know, how we're going to have to approach this. Because, like, we, I was n not here for SARS, and I was here for H1N1, and which, I mean, I don't want to talk out of my butt here, but in terms of, like, how, you know, the, the prevalence of it. But the thing that was scary about H1N1 was people that were healthy uh, could die. You know what I mean? Like a lot of these aggressive bugs, they they most they mostly um, 
the patients that are most vulnerable, like the elderly or the people that don't have normal immune systems, right. those are the, the ones that really truly need to be scared. But occasionally we get these bugs that you and I get and you end up in the intensive care unit. Like I, I could think of, like we, there was a uh, Ottawa professor that died in, uh, about 10 years ago from the H1N1. Um, and so what I'm trying to get at I'm trying to get the that it's scary in that way, like when and but we also plan for the increased number of sick people, right? So, normally, say for example, your your intensive care unit has about 24 patients, easily you could start going up by you know 25 percent, right? Because it's yeah, it's, I mean, it's already started to snow, snowball at least the coronavirus in, in China, where mm-hmm. you see the numbers every day kind of like 25 percent up, it goes from you know. It was like I think it was two thousand. It was four thousand, and I think it was like eight thousand something yep. confirmed cases this morning. You had one pop up in BC. Mm-hmm. I think there was one being screened in Ottawa. Uh, I don't know where that was. And by the time this gets released, it's it's gonna, you know, More go much, you know. Sure. But I just try. To, and you you'd be able to offer a good opinion on this. When I, when I see stuff like this, of course it's important to be cautious and and take all the precautions like you would with the regular flu wash your hands cover your mouth when you when you cough or with a kleenex um i think a lot of hysteria gets made over it which doesn't really you get like like every news hit is like dun dun your update like confirmed case and you're like holy shit what's happening oh my god like it just i i believe it gets blown out of proportion a lot yeah and uh I'm so I when I say this, this is a, just an opinion, not an expert opinion. Okay, right. I'm a, I'm along the same lines as you. Like I think we sensationalize yes. this a, a bit. Um, it is once again, it's it's scary because you know people that are healthy could be affected and could be um, more severe than other bugs. But from my reading and my understanding, the the people that are that you hear about that are passing mostly are patients that are, you know, not young that are, have other medical problems. Um, and so, you know, I, I personally, you know, I don't try and spend time worrying about it cause I don't know yeah. what I'm going to do about it except for everything that we, as you mentioned, wash my hands, you know, uh, um, you know, if I'm feeling ill, not being around other people that are ill, like just taking care of myself. But I don't, when I'm in a position where I don't think I could really do anything different, yeah, I'm, I, I don't, like I, I'm, pers- my bias, I don't read the news. Like I'm not looking at updates on coronavirus. Yeah. For sure. If it's going to be something that I need to know, I'm going to find out. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it, right? You know yeah. what I mean? By the time this comes out, who knows? It could be the next pandemic it could be gone yeah that's the funny thing about these things it kind of just you know even i mean and not to not to uh i guess kind of dampen the severity you know like every lost life of course is unfortunate you know but when you think of things like ebola or the zika virus h1n1 sars like the if we're talking about pandemic and like all these people are super worried about it, like the odds are like, it was like, I think SARS was like 880 deaths, which is awful. Mm -hmm. But when you think that regular influenza killed more people than that, that year, probably like it's, you got to look at things 
in in perspective to everything. Yeah, and I, and I think I've come across an art, article or two saying exactly that. Like at this point, influenza has been has been more deadly than Corona virus. So you know. Get your motherfucking flu shot, you know. <laughs> like, take care. Whoa, whoa, that's gonna give me autism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Some girl on Facebook your, told me that. <laughs> make your ear fall off too. Um, but yeah, no, I. Uh, the the thing for me is just do what you can, and yeah. you know, if it's gonna be a pandemic, this worrying about it, it has no impact on it. So yeah, you know, if it's if it's that big, we'll deal with it when it comes. Absolutely. But, uh, Let's, let's jump into the podcast and, and solving healthcare because I think that's an important topic in a, a lot of different areas. And it's a big topic because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure everybody with their own related experience has a different opinion on it, right? If I go to the hospital be, with cancer-related things, I'm going to have an opinion about that. People have their opinions about men- the mental illness part of it. We talked about it a little off the top, but let, let's go a little bit deeper you're, you're, you're publishing these papers, nothing's being done. Now you have this podcast to, to get word out and, and more. Like, what are some of the main things that you're really trying to tackle in this, in this podcast? Like, if you were to pick out, like, three, four themes that you're like, okay, these are, like, some big inefficiencies, I think that can be managed or, in my opinion, would really help mm-hmm. fix the system. Mm-hmm. Like, what would those types of things be? Yeah. I love the question because it's not an easy one, but I got I got I'm gonna come from my bias, like my world. Absolutely. Okay? One of the the crazy amount of resources goes into intensive care unit. So our patients take up about one percent of the gross domestic product. Okay, and a lot of the patients that come through do not benefit from an intensive care admission. I.e., if, you're, if you know, your grandma comes in and to the intensive care unit and she tells me my goal is to get back home and to be functional, a lot of times that's not possible. Or sometimes even to uh, live independently in general or even to ever leave the ICU. That is my goal. Often that is not attainable. And quite often we know it as clinicians, but yet the we'll still bring in patients that won't benefit from ICU care. So I'll, I'll give an example. Um, like, a, obviously, this is, uh, what do you call it? Uh, hypothetical, hypothetical situation, yeah, hypothetical, scenario. But a common one. 95-year-old woman from a nursing home who's demented, doesn't recognize her family, can't eat on, the, on her own, has documented that she would not want to be even transferred out of the nursing home for care. You know, if she was sick, just palliate me and and allow me to die peacefully in the nursing home. She's found to be, you know, uh, have decreased level of consciousness. You'll get somebody on the phone to the family saying, panicking, saying, oh, we need to transfer to the, the eMERGE. She's not breathing well. She's unconscious. Family feels pressure to bring the patient into hospital. They go to hospital. They get intubated and put a breathing tube in. All these procedures, poked and prodded to just try and maintain her life. 
at $3,000 a day minimum in the intensive care unit for care that she doesn't even want. And if we were to have better conversations with our with our patients, with our loved ones, saying, what would you really want near the end of your life? This would save the system millions. Like, we're about to publish a study where we, there was about 12 patients in, in, at the Ottawa hospital who's, um, we've, that were taken to the consent capacity board. So what that means is the patient has expressed wishes that they don't want aggressive care, but the family's insisted that they get aggressive care, so care that they don't want. Right. So we end up going to a tribunal and saying, making our, making our case, and these are 12 patients that have gone through that process. Those those 12 patients that we're about to publish cost the system $8 million. 12 patients. Just 12. Because the length of stay, I forget, is about three to four months on average in the hospital. Um, they're in the most expensive area in the hospital. And if, and if I'm not, and actually all of them had, all of them end up passing away. And so they're receiving care that, once again, they don't even want, and it's costing the system millions. This is a problem. You know, it's just literally burning money. And, and it's not, and I, I don't want to come across incentives to say it's, not, it's all about the money. It's they're suffering. They're, right. they're going through all these procedures, even something on, as routinely as suctioning somebody through their breathing tube. You know, where you feel like you're suffocating at least three or four times a day, being poked by, you know, to get blood work on a regular basis, to be able, not even to be able to scratch your nose because you're tied down, being extremely thirsty and not being able to do anything about it. They're going through all this because of our lack of uh, communication and our lack of addressing these higher level issues. It's crazy. Mm. And in the same time, we, like, I, we aren't funding necessarily all the social workers that we could that would be so valuable in an intensive care unit, physiotherapists that could help get the patient out of bed and get them stronger stuff that patients actually care about. Mm-hmm. It's not happening. And so this is like I, maybe I should have started off this way. This is what's drove what drove my whole research like program is when I experienced. I was, I was, uh, I think I was still training. Saw this patient where he he was a, he got into a car accident and uh, ended up with a tracheostomy and was really reliant on physiotherapy to help out his lungs. And we were doing such great work, and we were at an era where more and more healthcare cuts were happening, and so physiotherapy going to a long weekend. Physiotherapy is not available on the weekend. He gets a pneumonia and plugs off his lungs. Now needs to go back in the intensive care unit, needs to be back on a ventilator. And he's like three weeks setback because of healthcare cuts. These short-term solutions that create more long-term problems. And I'm like, this is insane. This is absolutely insane. We got to do better. Like we got to like figure out how to address this. Mm-hmm. So that's what started the research program. That's what, you know, my first even one of the main themes in our first few episodes is futile care and the impact it has on, on you know, society, the patient, 
the caregivers. Like the other thing that we don't talk about enough is the impact on the healthcare professionals. Like taking care of someone where, like I'll give the story, uh, Margot, if you're listening, <laughs> forgive me for saying the story uh, again, but I was I was training still, and we were taking care of a patient that was elderly and that was dying, but family still wanted us to keep going. And, and I saw her, she was crying in the right beside me. And I'm like, Margo, like, what's going on? And she's like, every time I walk in that room, I feel like I'm torturing that man. It's, it's awful. I, I can't, I can't do this. And these are the people that are providing amazing care that are in this game to try and make patients better and to alleviate suffering. And we're, we're not putting them in position to do that. Mm-hmm. It's, there's so many layers there from like uh, the impact of, of what we're doing. And so that was a huge driver for the, the show, the, the research program. And I mean, if I had to say, if you asked me one thing that would make a huge difference, better communication, talking about end of life earlier, more palliative care involvement earlier on. Um, I think these things could, uh, have a massive impact on healthcare, mm-hmm. plus the ninety other things that we talk about on the show. <laughs> but like, if you ask me to put a finger yeah. on some shit, yeah. like that's that's my huckleberry. Yeah, right there. I remember my mom always saying, as I mentioned before, my, my mom's a nurse, um, and she always said, "You ask her, any of her friends of, of nurses, that when we it's our time to go, do not put us on life support," mm. and never really got into details why but this is like it would seem they they see all this they do all this and they're like like fuck that i don't want that done to me yeah like if it's my time to go i want to go peacefully i don't want a tube jam a tube in my throat and sitting there suffering for like the last days of my life exactly and like to be honest with you like to just to the listener what we're saying is or what i'm saying is if you're going to benefit from all that, that's awesome. Like, of course, go through it, you know? Like, but there's often times where it's clear to the clinicians, they're, they're voicing it. It's clear to the patient. It's clear to even yourselves if you, if you ask the question. But it comes down to, like, either, I don't know, sometimes it's guilt. Sometimes it's on us, too, the clinicians, because we don't want to address, you know, we don't want to address it. Like Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example too. Like there are times where I will go on uh, a ward, see a patient on the ward that has like a late stage cancer, stage four pancreatic cancer, for example. And I'll be the first one to tell them that they have a terminal illness. You know, like they, you know, like Mm. the oncologist hadn't brought this up or either, or maybe if they did bring it up, it hadn't registered, but quite often it's, it can come to a shock to to the patient or the family and that's like shame on us man like there's like there's there's a um like clinicians are often worried about ruining a relationship by being too pessimistic or whatever right but the problem is if you're not being accurate or you're not being uh, absolutely forthcoming maybe that daughter in australia they might never see that daughter in Australia now, you know what I mean? Because they thought they still had months to, or years to live. Instead of having that awesome connection where that daughter from Australia comes in and they get to talk about good times and 
and and maybe spend more time with each other than they 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 were planning on and so right. like you're you're taking something away by not being upfront um in terms of the prognosis and stuff and so you know it's a huge problem and um but once again ryan if i were to fix if i had to fix one thing it would be around that issue right what's like feedback been for you on the inside um <laughs> right so you're talking about things and, and people's jobs and how they do things and you know talking about inefficiencies from people up top and how it gets filtered down have you have you had any like you know maybe resistance to to what you're trying to do has it mostly been everyone's like yeah like you nailed, like you know, nailed it. Excellent. Yeah, we need to fit. Like, what's the reception been like from people in the healthcare system? Yeah, the and I don't know. I'm trying to say this like uh, without sounding. How do I word this? Um, it has been overwhelm, overwhelming. The feedback. It's yeah. been something that has driven me to want to do the show more people have been extremely appreciative and responsive and saying like you know thank you for being like the nurse episode i did on fetal mm -hmm. care i would get letters i'd get texts saying thank you for seeing us for recognizing some of the problems that we see and i gotta tell you it, it has made it all the worthwhile and um so overall, generally, it's been really positive. Uh, the my research area in general being cost. A lot of people have. You could see a mixed reaction. Like people will often say, "Like, why do you care so much about money? Like, it, we, it's healthcare. We shouldn't care." <coughs> Excuse me. But I want us to be able to fund the things that matter. You right. know, I, that matter to us all you know and i think if we don't talk about it then we won't address it so if there's been any kind of like negativity it's the fact that i, I talk about cost as much as i do mm -hmm. but you know i i think it's ignorant not to address it and i also think to create change like the upper management that's the language they they understand right, right? if you you're trying to start a new program or whatever and you could show that it saves money ding 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 you know what i mean improves care and saves money let's go you know yeah. what i'm saying but um overall i gotta tell you it's been extremely humbling getting the messages and the the positive uh yeah positive uh, inter, uh interactions man yeah yeah because you always wonder when you're you're you know maybe criticizing cuts and 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 government like who who's up top being like mm, mm -hmm. she calling me out there you know it's like <laughs> but, it's like you said like uh, on your show man like you spend as a medical trainee you spend a large number of time not being your authentic self because you are there trying to like you get into med school you got to please your supervisors to get in the appropriate residency when you're in residency you, you got to please people to try and get into your fellowship when you get in your fellowship you got to please people to get your 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 staff job once you get your staff job you're the new kid on the block you don't want to ruffle feathers so you you're still being that right person that you're you think they want you to be and 
And so I'm grown ass man now. <laughs> you know what I mean? With some big shoulders. Like I don't like I don't mind when people are creased at me as long as I can look at myself in the mirror and say right. I did the right thing. Yeah. You Integrity, know what I mean? And yeah. I think yeah, exactly. And I I think there's not enough of us that have that are asking us ourselves that question. Are we doing the right thing? Can you look at, like I like to sorry if I'm ranting a bit. I love but it. like I I like to act like my kids are in the room and they can see me see how dad's acting right now. If someone pushed over an old lady in a rocker to get in front of a line, well, how would you behave if your kids are watching? You ain't gonna just say, take, go to the side and be like, oh man, just ignore, we don't wanna cause trouble. I'm like, no man, this ain't Scooby-Doo. You gotta, you gotta front, man. You gotta do what's right. This is what I'm trying to teach my kids. This is what I'm trying to, you know, uh, I think more of us need to do is look at ourselves in the mirror and say, are we doing the right thing? And um, yeah, I mean, the, the, that's why I, I always, like, I don't mind getting heat. Mm. It's like uh, another thing I, I, it's important to me too, and this might seem a little tangential, like when we deal with a lot of end-of-life care issues, uh, when when we're approaching a family talking about what we, you know, we think this is the end, um, one of the mistake, common mistakes trainees do or, or some docs do is say, what do you want us to do? Like, what do you want us to do now that, I've painted a, a grim picture. But when I ask that question, I put the onus on your on you, saying, like, now I'm making you feel like you're pulling the plug. Well, that's wrong, man. Mm. I, I want you to feel like, if anybody, I want you to blame me. The doctors were the ones that were saying that dad wouldn't want this based on his values. So that at the end of the day, you know, if it's a, f- a family with mixed opinions, that they're not mad at each other or, or have this disjointed relationship as a result i want them to be a if anything blame us you know what i mean like because that way i'm we're maintaining that relationship in the family as best we can and yeah someone might be upset at me but at the end of the day i'm looking at them in the mirror and saying i'm doing the right thing for my patient and the family you know i have no idea how i got on this rant i'm just sitting here just (laughs) hell yeah You know, I don't know. Cheering you on. (laughs) Is, you know, I, no, I just, I've been asking myself a a lot about this lately because, you know, justice is one of the values I find the most important to me. And, you know, and, and I've always wondered why that was. And I think maybe it just comes, you, you know, I was a, like a, a, Black, one of like few black kids in in Edmonton, Alberta, and you know the amount of like I, mean, I ain't it's not the South like it, you know what I'm saying, but like yeah. the amount of you know injustice that you would see or be pushed towards yourself, you couldn't help to be have that as a value. Like you, right. you, you know, it was enough. You get you got tired of being called names. You got tired of being looked at different or people making assumptions about you. So it has always been a, a a big or an important value to me. And I, I don't know if it's, maybe that's why I feel so strongly about it, but um, certainly it's a big part of my life is, you know, justice for all. Yeah. I've, I mean, we've, I've talked about that numerous amounts of times on this, on the show with different people and, and, you know, my, my opinions have evolved on all that. And as I learn more and talk to more people and, 
hear about that and hear about lived experience and, and all that. So it's interesting you say that and how you carry what you learned as a, as an adolescent and a teenager and as a young adult into who you are now as a doctor and how you're taking that lived experience of things you've went through and now using that knowledge and, and passion to support your patients and mm -hmm. the families. Like I'm just I, hearing you talk about, I'd rather the whole family basically hate me and blame me. So like they're good. And the person dies peaceful. I'm like, that's, that's admirable. Like, you know, like a lot of people don't have that strength to, to deal with that, that pressure that, you know, like everyone just wants to be liked. I just want you to like me. I'm, I'm the nice <laughs> doctor, you know, or I'm the nice guy. Yeah. Like, to, so just to hear that, like, it's such an interesting, like, I can just hear the conviction. Like, you, you were apologizing for ranting. I always say never apologize for, you know, speaking your truth or talking or mm -hmm. sharing that. But, like, you could hear it. You could hear that conviction. So it's that. very, uh, very inspiring for sure. One of the more interesting things I heard in, in some of the episodes I was I was listening to is the difference between treating sickness like in sickness care versus kind of preventative taking those preventative measures I know yeah. you were talking about social programs but you know it's a it's a big thing why I support do it for Darren in mental health because they're an organization that directly helps kids before they reach that that crisis point when you know in their early adolescence where you know you might think of suicide right you're giving them the tools mm -hmm. beforehand to hopefully never get to that point so i took that com that comparable but it was interesting to hear you talk about it and how much of a difference it could make oh, um man. and that what was i wrote down the number because i found it truly fascinating yeah, yeah. that 13% of our GDP goes to social programs. Denmark is 27%. Yeah. And they spend far less on what we call sickness care. So I would equate that to the care, like when you're actually sick, when yeah, you have the cancer, when you have yeah, exactly. heart issues, instead of being like, no, let's, you know, expand gym time or, you know, get the kids exercising. Yes. And, you know, I, I found that really interesting yeah. that you guys were talking about that. That's position yeah you know honestly ryan we don't learn about this shit like we don't we don't we don't uh like i you know med school was like started almost 20 years ago and so maybe things have changed but as far as i know the social determinants of health these these things that really can make a difference early we don't talk about it and we don't talk about the value of it and if we thought about even without evidence if you think about the logic it is sound you you get your kids moving you get them less likely to uh you get them eating um dealing with obesity and eating well you you get your kids feeling supported yes they're going to avoid maybe having that drug overdose or suicide attempt or complications of obesity and and diabetes it and there's more and more studies now that I'm been more paying mm -hmm. attention to mm -hmm. it. More and more studies that are telling you that this is fact, and this is to me the future. Like we really need to do a better job at at 
dealing with the problem before it's a problem. Be, look at more preventative medicine. I, I interviewed yesterday or the day before um, Kate Mulligan. Shout out Kate Mulligan <laughs> at U of T. What's up? And she's got this program called Social Prescribing where the doctor says, you know what? We're gonna take you, get you cooking classes. I've We're heard, gonna, I've heard of that. Yeah, yes, yeah. Sexy as fuck, man. <laughs> and they're, yeah. they're they're showing it works. You're, there's like, if you think about it, you're an elderly widow, widowed uh, patient that's coming in with their diabetes, and your diabetes is getting worse controlled because you just lost your husband. You're eating more. Quite often, patients like that, they will die within months. Just because like they don't have any support, they're like spiritually, physically, uh, emotionally, they've just been destroyed after the loss of their loved one. I have a friend's mom going through that right now. Right, uh, lost her husband, and he's like dragging her to try to get her out and doing stuff. Exactly, and uh. you're gonna create a, a a situation where the patient feels supported. They're gonna feel a sense of uh, community. They're gonna sense get a sense of belonging by you know. Um, by and get a, get um some skills like eating better, all these things, and there's not a drug that you need right. to add to this solution. Like it's just it makes so much sense. And uh, I like I told Kate that you know we'll help her with her study in any way she wants, but um this to me is the future and where we need to go because these million dollar meds that we're doing for our diabetics. And then we're seeing complications from those medications. You get those and- commercials on TV where it's like, <laughs> ask your doctor if, and it's like, here's all the side effects. Like, and yeah. like, like Oh my God. <laughs> make your pancreas explode. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it's, but um, yeah, de- cause in my opinion, my general mantra with medicine in general is less is more like you don't, when you don't have to add something, don't, um, but this is the the beautiful thing of this social prescribing or or um, you know increasing uh, the support in the community to be able to make our our citizens more functional. It's to me, it's the future. Just like it's to me, outside of the medical profession, with like no skin in the game, totally, you know, outside opinion, just seems like common sense. Yeah, you get those. You just look at the what the hierarchy of needs, right? Like you just you just fill those, and of course, like people are going to be healthier and happier, and you know you hope to to cut out those preventable diseases mm-hmm. and and issues that sort of eventually start clogging up our system in ways, exactly. Um, like you were saying about and getting them into the ICU and spending a bunch of money on them, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you. I'm not even one who gets sick that often. Like I, and I don't ever go to the emergency. Like I haven't been in since I broke my arm. Mm -hmm. And when I was like 16, uh, that was like 11 years ago. Like it's just, you get people just doing kind of what we're biologically supposed that we were doing in early human years before we got so used to this convenience of technology and, and everything. Right. Like it's talking. Yeah. Uh, being together, being active, being active, looking each other in the eye when talking instead of being like, yeah, yeah, and staring at our phones yeah. or talking to each other on our phones when we're three feet away. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 
it's uh you know that's a big reason like i do this podcast is for the mental health because it's super interesting not only to you know have these conversations with you and, and learn and do all these things but you know i've met so many people now for the first time they walk in through these doors and i've never met them before and we just talk and we're, we're friends yeah. and it's like like it's almost that easy <laughs> you sit yeah. with someone for an hour and you're like oh yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> you know what? Because everyone's fucking interesting, yeah, man. Yeah. If you actually, everyone has something interesting to say. Everyone has an, an interesting experience. Like, even uh, if you take a step back and try and you're at a dinner party, you see this person that seems dry as fuck. And you're like, I don't want, I don't really want to be stuck talking to him. But you're like, you're either you're ignoring each other or you're talking. Make it make it a goal of yours to find out what that interesting thing is. That thing that where they start talking about it, they get that sparkle in mm-hmm. their eye where they start to have that little smile in their face and they're that much more engaged. Mm-hmm. And often it's something actually quite interesting. Yeah, you know. And um, this is a be- like we're here, man. We're together. We're like let's connect, man. Yeah. One of my favorite questions, like if I'm interviewing someone for a job, uh, when I was single, I'd always ask people on dates. It's like, what are you passionate about? Yeah. Right? Like, that is the easiest way to get them comfortable. It's one of the first questions I ask. Yeah. It's not about the job. It's not about this. It's not about, what are you passionate about? Because immediately they'll be like, I am super passionate about this. And then you just see them get excited and they're comfortable all of a sudden. I love it. And they're just like, it's like, okay, now you're ready to talk, right? There's no reason. You know, we, we've set up so many, you know, not just with the technology and our phones and social media, but like the boundaries we put on ourselves where we're just... Like, no, I don't want to talk to anybody right now. I just want to go through. Like, yeah. I, no, you can't talk to me because, <clears throat> you know, you might. I might think you're going to hit on me or yeah. you, I, I, I don't trust you, right? And, of course, a lot of those things are valid, absolutely. But we've just lost a lot of that human connection. Like, people will get weirded out because they say hi on the elevator. Isn't it crazy? <laughs> okay. Where, where are you raised? You, you're raised in... I'm from Carlton Place, so that so is... O-town, like, O-Town area. A small town, but yeah. Small, but you got small I'm town. I'm small flavor. town, yeah. Yeah, because this was one of the first thing I noticed coming coming from E Town, Oiler Nation. What's up? Um, like in Edmonton, you walk into an elevator, you say you say what's up to like you say hi to people, like you say how you doing or whatever. Like that's common courtesy. Yeah, you know what I mean. When I moved to Ottawa and you throw down and say, "Hey, how you doing?" in the elevator, like. I'm not saying everybody's that way, but it's a little bit more standoffish. You'd be like, "Who is this guy? Does he have an, an agenda or something?" Yeah, it's just yeah, like, right. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Where it's just like, to me, it was always like, "That's what you do." It's just a courteous yeah. way of. Uh, so yeah, I always kind of read them, but no matter what, if I don't talk to him before I leave the elevator, say, "Have a good night, have a good yeah. day." Uh, I, I don't find that weird. It, because but people it are like so taken because back. that's that's. That's, I mean, not to be too, like, uh, dogmatic, but this is what we're supposed to do, man. Acknowledge someone when you're that close to them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's weird that it's normal to just sit there and just... Pretend not to see each other. Yeah, it's in your phone. Um, No, I, I completely agree. And one of the things that was interesting, just to, like, set the thing, not the best segue I've ever done, but we're getting there. Social determinants of health. I heard that in some of the episodes. You said it now. What does that mean? Okay, so I apologize. That's I okay. Have, I should have been more 
it's like your social circumstances, how that imp- impacts your your well-being. So if you are, you know, your ethnicity, uh, how much money you make, your housing, um, your gender, like things that are um, socially determined and how much that can impact your, your care. Interesting. And so, like, if you don't have... If you if you know that you're you're poor essentially, you know you have poor you have worse outcomes. Yeah, compared to those that have more money. Like we even see it at a population level. If you were to study people from X area that has lower average income compared to those with a higher average income, the average the higher average income patients do better. You know what I mean? Patients that don't have a fixed address. So, you know, either they're moving around a lot or they don't have a home. They do worse than pay, than people that have a fixed address. So just to, to make sure I'm, I'm clear on that. So are you talking about, like, just in general, in terms yeah. of health, those people would be sicker? Okay, yeah. so it's not, you know, if you, we both had cancer yeah. and I, I was poor and you were rich, that, like, it would affect me worse, right? So it's just... It's, but it... Sort of, okay. There's just some great area actually, there. Yeah, like... Okay. Um, you can't say necessarily it's causing you to do worse, but it's associated with you doing worse. I might be talking out of my ass now. But, um, <laughs> you know, like certainly that there's an association that we both, you and I, like I'm poor, you're, you got all the cake. We both have early stage cancer. The poor person is more likely to do worse. Right. You know, the one that doesn't have a fixed address is likely to do worse. So the, the the whole argument is we should be addressing these issues early and it could have a, a, a significant impact on their overall well-being, overall health. Right. And this would... So, like, for example, if we improve... Like, you, you gave the Denmark example. If more people had homes, for example... Like less people lived out on the streets, you're gonna have better healthcare outcomes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so obviously, it disproportionately affects, you know, people of color, indigenous populations. Yeah. So when we take a look at that overall numbers in the population, we can see that those, you know, oppressed communities are like they're. They do worse. Their health is worse. Their health is worse. So I, uh, when, when you hear people talk about institutionalized racism and all that stuff, that you know these things come into play, and there's actually scientific data that like is supporting this. Absolutely. That's okay. Like if you, I mean, you, I, what, I'm gonna get Mike Curlew on the show, but the stuff that he sees up north, in like a Callaway, and you know, like it really is third world medicine. They're sometimes running out of oxygen. They don't have all the, the medicines or antibiotics that we might have. And these are Canadian citizens. Right. Well, not to it, mention, you know, clean water. Cle- that's exactly. That's still not a thing. <laughs> I mean, you get in a whole other conversation on yeah, all that. Yeah, like it's, it's uh, I mean, so like it's crazy. I have five adopted siblings and they're all Inuit. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, before, and I've had this conversation uh, specifically mostly with uh, Carrington, who was on my podcast earlier, but 
we were talking about some of these issues because you know as a just talked about it i'm a i'm a white kid from a small town mm -hmm. like most of my life we had i went to school with one black kid and you know i was the kid in town mm -hmm. right so it was just never experienced anything other than like what i knew so anyways as i've grown older now you start getting involved with you know their families and their communities and you you start hearing stories from you know the residential schools and like, all the you're like when you say third world medicine like it's true like not mm -hmm. to mention like just like if you want you know they don't have sunlight and you can't even get milk for less than like 35 dollars right you know like and that's just very basic vitamin d it's is so when you uh, coke is cheaper than yeah some of these like milk uh you know it's crazy i guess so i guess like it's a good segue into the, this question that i wanted to ask you it's like so like we were talking about off air when i was talking about mental health and you know how we're gonna break the the barriers right so now we're talking about all these issues people are learning we're hearing about all these things like as a regular day person mm -hmm. and just to segue a little bit i had a conversation with uh someone i i work with um and their their wife his wife is a uh a psychologist mm -hmm. and i i tweeted out basically saying like um excuse me in that reference to that story about all the kids who are seeking uh, mental health access, the 28,000 kids that need help. I said, this is why we need funding. Yeah. And he's kind of saw it and he's like, it's not quite that simple because who are you funding? Mm -hmm. So like you, you, all the intricacies aside of the funding issue and what I'm trying to get at after this big tangent, we all know about it now. What can regular people like me, like people listening, what can we do? Do we need to like go storm down Doug Ford's office and be like, yo, help <laughs> us out? You know, like how do we how do we tangibly make things better? Yeah, that is a that's a tough that's yeah. a tough question. Um, that's what we do here. We ask the hard hitting yeah, questions here, right? But me, people are gonna wanna know, like once we we start identifying these problems and it's one thing to have people like this is what we need to do. Yeah, you know. So and it's a totally fair. It's totally you know, fair. Like yeah. What? What? How do we? How and do especially we make as a regular change? day person, you know, who's who might not affect, be able to affect the change in the hospitals or advocate with studies. Like, I just want better health care. Like, how do we go about this collectively to actually see or seek change? I, like, you don't even have to give me a concrete answer, but no, like no, just no, in your opinion. Yeah, I think I think if I look at things that have have changed and the way that it's happened one is just increasing the awareness and recognizing it's a problem and then getting whether it's you know social momentum whether that's in 2020 that's increasing social media presence um whether it's engaging people that can make a difference whether it's your you know your politicians or or people that have you know, do philanthropy or whatnot. For me, to, the biggest step to creating any kind of change is to increasing the awareness and right. just getting it out there, recognizing it's a problem. So, like, I mean, like I said, I got three kids. My wife's a psychologist, okay, an adult psychologist, mind you. Mm -hmm. I had no idea the kids 
psychology problem was that rampant. I had no idea it cost $3,000 to go get an assessment for your kid if you, you're worried if they have something like ADHD or something like that. No clue. Mm. And I'm married to a psychologist. And mind you, my wife would tell me I'm just an ignorant dog that doesn't listen and all that <laughs> stuff. So, yeah, maybe that's a part of the problem. But honestly, like, I'm relatively close to it, and I had no, I had no mm. idea the scale of this, you know? And so um, I ended up interviewing one of one of our more popular episodes I did with Dr. Adrian Matheson. She's a child, uh, child psychologist. And, I mean, if you saw my face, if you were in the room and you saw my face during the interview, I was like, my mouth was open. I'm like, God damn, man. These are our kids, and we can't even address this, you know? And so... To me, without being, you know, somebody that's created a lot of change or experience with it, the w- one thing I do know how to do and can see is the impact of just getting the word out. Like, mm-hmm. this is a problem that needs addressing. And I got to tell you, one thing from doing the show that I've, I've learned, too, is that often can trigger a lot. Like, for example, Dr. Matheson's cl- clinic after doing the show, she had some people approach her doing to do pro bono work for kids. Like you know, that, you know that wouldn't have happened if we weren't increasing the awareness. Right. Um, there's um, a colleague of mine, Mike Hartwick, was talking to me about how we want to do hearing the show and wanting to engage kids earlier on to avoid problems. He's asking. You know, colleagues now, what we could do to try and create a whatever a type of program that could improve the situation with uh, kids. Like he lives near, um, shit, I'm going to screw this up, near um, Britannia. And there was like a shooting. Oh, man, I'm, I'm, I should know the name of the kid. I apologize. There was a, a shooting, I think, last year. And this neighborhood is not safe. And there's a whole bunch of kids at risk. And he's telling me, like, maybe we could be doing something to help them out. Like, you know, like nothing tangible's happened yet. But but, but the fact that yeah. we're we're talking about it, I feel like something's, you know, these things, some of these are, situations are going to improve. Excuse me. <clears throat> so for me, that's that's the big, big step is awareness and see where it goes from there, to be honest. Yeah, I'm that... I mean, it sparks something. It's like, is there a way to like come up with a foundation where you reach out to psychologists or whatever, and it's like they they do it at a discount, but they still get paid. Mm-hmm. Where you like can do like a mobile kids kind of like so you fund it, yeah, and people get the work. They get maybe thirty minutes, and you pay them like I don't know, maybe they do it for fifty bucks or whatever, a hundred bucks or. 75 whatever the price is Mm -hmm. but like but you just do that so you give people because i mean like don't get me wrong it's the same thing with doctors right you guys put it's like for psychologists you put a lot of money a lot of time and a lot of yourselves into reaching to where you are so i have no problem with them being paid and and that that whole therapist should do their work for free there's a little bit of a movement i'm like no like Mm -hmm. you can't you can't do that you gotta pay them right but is there a way to make it more accessible in a, in a real way? I, I mean, that's the thing. You start the conversation and there's a million ways to do it. It's like, yeah, could it be discounted? Could you, 
give a certain amount of your hours for free? Um, can we um, approach Ottawa businesses to drum up some money to to be able to see sponsor m- it. to sponsor it? Could, do you have a walk? Twice or once a year to increase awareness. You do a telethon. I don't know if telethons exist anymore. Yeah, that's some, some stations yeah, and TV still yeah. does. Like there, does. Yeah, like there is forty eight ways that you could do this, but the the whole thing is talk. Like you got to know it's a problem first. Yeah, and then you know, the thing that you and I are doing is motivating some cats, man. Like you, you not only saying, oh, by the way, you, a lot of kids aren't seeing ain't aren't seeing psychologists when they need to but it's like the impact of that this is kids that are now that could be healthier and anxiety like decreased anxiety decreased depression and we're not addressing it early because of a lack of resources and i'm like yo like for those listening these are our motherfucking kids man if you ain't gonna get amped up about something i don't know what you do but these are our kids this is our future yeah my favorite saying is well you know that I got, I went through this, and I turned out fine. You didn't. <laughs> it, I mean, that, that that's. I mean, I I don't need to tell you how yeah. horseshit. Yeah, I read was. a great art, a article about that and how humans have that value of. Uh, I, I wish I remember what it was. That there was an actual term. I don't know if you know, but it that that I did it or I went through it. So you also have to, yeah, no, right? They, it's wicked in medicine. There's a term for it and I'm I know, I read it. One of my it guests and... used it too and I, I I can't remember. But in medicine it's where well, where we see it not so much in the mental side of things, but we like when I started, I was doing like I could be in hospital seeing patients for 30 plus hours. Yeah. And now the kids have fixed that problem, you know, where they're not in the hospital 30 something hours seeing patients when you know you're not at your finest. How is that beneficial yeah. to anybody? So, like, they've really fixed things. And that's one thing I got to give props to millennials for is, like, you know, just saying, like, screw this, let's go. Like, let's fix this problem and yeah. um, not just stand for it. Because I feel like my generation's a bit of, you know, do as you're told. That's you the know. way it is, type mental. Yeah, it is. I, I talk about that a lot, too. And, uh, you know, I have certain you know things that bug me about my generation and the generation below me because they disrupt a lot of stuff and a lot of things can be frustrating for the way you do business or everything but that's one thing i 100 percent back is they aren't they don't put up with the shit that is truly like unfair yeah and and that like like it's just they're just like no or and you're like we'll do it they're not afraid to be like i'll walk yeah and a question I wanted to ask you about this, which is perfect. I hear about, like, again, I, just on an outside thing, I hear about like the doctor shortage mm-hmm. that, you know, um, especially in rural, rural areas and, you know, out there communities, Canada is a vast place with not a lot of urban centers that there's just, it's a lot of an issue to get doctors. Right. Is the barrier of entry too difficult, too hard? Like, is that what it's kind of... <coughs> pushing people's away from being a doctor is it you know what why do you think there is a shortage to be honest with you uh like a lot has changed so i don't so speaking specifically about the rural scenario it's been a while since i've been paid attention so i don't know if that is as desperate times as it used to be but 
the ironically there's actually in a lot of areas docs that can't find jobs is that right okay yeah like in my specialty the main one being icu hmm. i like i worked in belleville aka bell vegas yeah, was so i went to college the truth yeah oh loyalist. there you go <laughs> noise uh i worked in sous saint marie uh, there was no jobs as a, an ICU doc. And a, a lot of ICU docs listening will be like, yeah, I'm trying to find a job somewhere. There's orthopedic surgeons that are doing their second or third subspecialty training, i.e. in their eighth year of training that still can't find a job. You could be a cardiac surgeon right now that can't find a job. It's it's actually crazy. Hmm. So if anything, often it's we... The problem is, you know, there's enough work. Like, for example, you you know how there's a lot of people waiting to get their hips done or any mm-hmm. kind of these orthopedic procedures, but it's just not funded. Not, we don't have enough operating rooms open. Um, so because they can't find work, they're forced to do extra training on stuff that, to be honest, might not be practical. Mm. I got colleagues of mine in ICU that are doing a PhD in some shit. Like, I don't know what you would need a PhD in, in medicine, like uh, from a, on a day-to-day basis or, um, or I should rephrase that. I don't know what you, you would need higher than a master's level for, for most ICU related uh, positions, but they're doing this so that they could buy time and have a more Just, attractive right um, resume. So, in a lot of ways, what I see anyway is the opposite. It's just the doctors can't find work. Interesting. Okay. It's crazy. Okay. So is there would there be a difference between, like, say, the hospital work versus, say, a general family practitioner, like, doctor? Like, yeah. So there's, okay, so there's a difference in that. Okay. Yeah, because, like, I think, you know, there's a lot of people that can't find family doctors. I don't know. What's going on there? Let me think about this. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But basically, like, you kind of have to choose to be a family doctor. You So, so I'll say all these people trying to be, like you were saying, they have having trouble finding work. They couldn't just say, I'll go make a family practice? No, they would so, have to, yeah, those guys would have to do some retraining and stuff. Okay, and get, okay. So you start to do more from, I mean, maybe that, it's been a while since something I've thought new. about this. So they, it could be that we're not funding enough family medicine positions. So basically, when you're done medical school, there'll be a certain amount of spots for all the specialties assigned throughout the country. And usually about half of that is usually family medicine or general practice. Um, and maybe the problem is we're not, we don't have enough family medicine okay. spots or people aren't interested in it. Um, it's a very tough job. Yeah. That is a, like, you that is a very tough, underappreciated, under-supported position. And, you know, when you got a good family doc, those those cats are heroes. But it's, it's a tough spot. You, you got to see a lot of patients in a short period of time. Um, yeah, it's not an easy job. Yeah. Well, I can imagine. You got a, <coughs> you got a lot of different things coming in and you kind of have to make quick calls on yep. things or just kind of send them off. And yeah, I couldn't like, I, 
I was never good with any of this stuff. That's why I went into radio. <laughs> so I could only imagine just like the half of it, right? It's yeah. it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, before I, you know, I let you go. I, I really wanted to get an opinion because you see a lot of it now with social media and and Instagram influencers and YouTubers and 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 media personalities is the alternative medicines. Mm. So I'm not talking necessarily about, you know, I had a naturopath doctor on here and, I, I, you know, I'm not saying any of that stuff is wrong. What I'm talking about is like the Gwyneth Paltrow's, <laughs> the, the people who are going on Instagram being health and wellness coaches who are, uh, one person put out a video, tips on how to overcome depression. People with no background, they took a fifth, like a $50 course on the internet and are now giving health advice mm -hmm. as a doctor like are you i mean one question could be like are you seeing people coming in with the 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 person on instagram told me to put a banana up my ass and now it's stuck <laughs> you know what i mean like you see <laughs> funny like, yeah. funny stuff like that but you know like people i don't know if it's a lack of trust in the health system if it's searching for answers elsewhere i, I don't know what it is but there's a definitely a rise in it and it's become yes. profitable yeah like, um, I don't know if you have an opinion on that as like a... Yeah, I have a few things that come to top, top of my mind. Like, first of all, anything complimentary, I don't care what you're doing. Like, as long as you you seriously should be considering therapy that we know is effective and comes with evidence. Like, if we know you got a curable cancer and you need this chemo to take it, please take the chemo. If you want to take this herb that you, your natural path gave you and it doesn't counter it doesn't interact with the medications that we know are going to work mm -hmm. i have no problem with that in general the i think it comes a lot of it comes down to a lack of trust and i'm not sure where we lost the trust in the in the medical community like dr google is way like people feel like they have uh, the same voice uh based on the fact that they googled it and you know, I've got years of expertise mm -hmm. on a subject, but you know, Dr. Google maybe is just as good or maybe even more, yeah, uh, um, appropriate. I don't know, you know, like I think that's been a big part of things. And the other thing, I, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a arse in a way. We, we just people, one of the life skills that we don't emphasize, or you know, like. In school, you, you, you're still learning how to memorize a ton of stuff, right? Our kids coming through, you're going to be able to look up a ton. Like, mm -hmm. I, I was a, of the generation where, like, you had to go to the library to look up some shit, encyclopedia and all that. But now you got your phone, you got all these kind of, your information's at your disposal. It's easy to find out stuff. But the thing that we need to emphasize and people don't think about well enough is how to critically think how to actually evaluate the information that's in front of you to say, is this credible? This person that's telling me to put a banana up my ass, what was their background? You know what I mean? Do they have a medical degree? Do they have uh, anything concrete that would make, give me some security? What is the path, uh, I was gonna use two sexy words. Um, what is the logic on why this treatment will work? You gotta be able to rationalize that and, in your head the banana up your butt what is a mechanism that's making that is healing my xyz right 
there has to be something that you could put that you could connect. Okay. And so this is paramount in an era where you're being inundated with crazy amount of information or fake news as yeah. Trumpists would, would, would throw down. You really need to be able to learn how to decipher what seems more credible and, and, and what doesn't and make a sound decision for you. And this is, I mean, I'm going off on a little bit of a rant here too. That's totally why I, I brought it up. <laughs> yeah, I really, like, I really want my kids, I want the schools, how do we How do we think uh, more critically? How do we recognize what biases are within us or that are being presented to us? Because in 2020 and beyond, this is essential to be able to make wise decisions, period. Yeah. Whether it is bananas or not. <laughs> That's true. Why oh, yeah, I... that was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> that, was that was unintentional. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's so true. The uh, My favorite saying is just, you know, information is like it's kind of like food in, in which you can have a bad diet of information, yeah. right? And you're right. There's... I referenced in earlier, there's, just, there's so much to know. And it's coming at you so rapidly, whether it's what's on the news, what's happening in Iran, Kobe mm-hmm. Bryant, uh, you know, China genocide and, and genocide in um, the Middle East and like all that, not to mention our daily lives. And, and you know, like, are, are my kids happy? Am mm-hmm. I happy? Is mm-hmm. my partner happy? Am I doing a good job at work? Mm-hmm. People listening to my pod, like it's just, just so much. All the time. And I just, you know, and it's a great point that you have to consciously make an effort to to decipher what is good and what's bad. Mm-hmm. And so many people just don't, and you get lost in this, like, rapid Twitter sphere of, like mentality of mob mentality and everyone's just the the craziest of takes yeah like there's just people i follow on left and right that i like i just i see them tweet i'm like whoo <laughs> holy moly i don't know how you did that and got there but whoa yeah right you just are like damn man like i like it's it's hard it's yeah. it's hard to do and i can only imagine you know like that's <laughs> why so i just i laugh because i see some of the stuff like People tried to, ins- oh, what was it? It was, um, was it garlic or onions, like putting it in their vaginas for yep. cleansing or something. And yeah. I can only, it always takes me back to the the scene in American Pie 2 when he has the crazy glue and it gets stuck. <laughs> and I'm just like, does that shit actually happen in the ER room? And I remember oh. asking, yeah, I remember asking my friend and yeah. they're like, yeah, we've seen some oh, shit. Oh, you will, I'm, I don't work in a merge, but the stories are endless oh, yeah i just like i couldn't imagine i'm like no what is like is it, did that actually happen yeah no, it's, <laughs> it is absolutely bonkers well listen man we could have a five-hour conversation on all this stuff but i'm just gonna throw them to your podcast because oh, i appreciate uh, that man i know i fell in love with it and we'll definitely be listening uh so thank you for coming on i really appreciate it can i give you some lo- love too man i i really Please. want to give you some mad props on what you're doing buddy like i i want to praise your your courage to be able to be a voice for you know the struggles that many people are having like having someone that 
authentically, will tell you what they've gone through, and to speak to so many people and to reach so many people, I could promise you, without knowing the numbers or whatever, you are having a positive impact on a lot of people's lives. And I, anybody that's doing that kind of wonderfulness, you got to give mad props to. And, well, uh, and thank so, you, I appreciate like, it. I, 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 I'm glad I, I'm glad I got to meet you. Yeah, I, I know we have a podcast meeting coming up soon. And yes. Yeah, we're gonna like hash out some, like uh, I don't know what we're gonna do. We're yeah, gonna shout out to the interview dudes. Yo, interview dudes <laughs> representing hard. Uh, where can people listen to you? Where can they find your podcast? Oh, my podcast is everywhere. It's like oxygen. You can see it. it's on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube channel. You can follow us at, at Quadcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, and on YouTube, um, and you know we just trying to change the boogie. You guys keep uh, uh, keep checking us out, and we won't disappoint. Yeah, at Quadcast Solving Healthcare, uh, and I, like I said off the top, I'm not just saying it to boost your ego. It was the those that type of thing that like no one is really doing, but it's like so vital and tangible to like everybody. And it's success. Like that's the thing I love about podcasts too. It's free. It's accessible. Yeah. People can learn about all this stuff, and you're not so, some influencer just talking shit on Instagram. Like yeah. you got the knowledge, and you have like amazing guests who know their shit. So I look forward to like checking out Kate Mulligan and Matheson and and all that stuff. It's gonna I be great. It. Thanks, my friend. All right, Doctor Quadjo Caramantang. Thank you, sir. Bye, everybody. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole.